0: Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Sarah Dowdy and I'm Delena Chakraborty. And not that long ago, listener Brandon sent us a pretty impressive list of East Asian history topics. I mean, it really covered everything from feudal Japan to 20th century Chinese history. But one topic in particular really appealed to me because, in a way, it picks up where we left off on an earlier episode, the one about Admiral Yi of Korea and his impressive turtle ships.
1: And if you remember in that podcast, Admiral Yi's Tactical Genius and Advanced Technology those ironclad ships, if you'll remember, helped repel not one, but two Japanese invasions in the 1590s. Not long after Yi's victory at the Roaring Channel, the Japanese began a slow retreat, one sped up considerably in 1598 when Toyotomi Hideyoshi, one of Japan's great unifiers, and the mastermind of that invasion died suddenly, leaving only a very young son and a bunch of regents. So anybody who was anybody in Japan wanted to be back home at that point. They wanted to be ready and in place for whatever power grab was inevitably about to happen.
0: But before we get into that moment, when they're trying to figure out who is going to control Japan while this little boy is coming of age, it might really help to have a refresher on the work that Hideyoshi had already done to unify the country before he died so suddenly. And 16th century Japan, as you might remember from the earlier podcast, was just a mess of civil wars between these powerful feudal lords called daimyos and Hideyoshi, who had been born a peasant in 1536, eventually rose to the really powerful position of henchman for Oda Nobunaga, who was the first of the great unifiers and Japan's de facto ruler. So when Nobunaga
1: died, Hideyoshi succeeded him as ruler. He couldn't take the title of shogun because of his birth and was instead called regent. But once in charge, Hideyoshi set about trying to unify the country and Korean invasions were actually sort of an attempt to do just that. I guess the logic being if you're fighting someone else, maybe you're not fighting each other. Or at least not so much. Right. But as we already know, Hideyoshi died suddenly in the middle of the second invasions, leaving only a five-year-old son,
0: Toyotomi Hideyori. So in order to keep power in the family until his son came of age, he set up a regency, or Hideyoshi did, rather, five warriors who would co-rule and govern the country in the meantime while his son was growing up. I mean... As we know from lots of podcasts from all sorts of countries, the regent system is usually pretty shaky, unless the regent is somebody's mom. And um, it seemed unlikely that these five powerful men in the country were going to be okay just standing by while this boy grew up. The lead regent, Tokugawa Ieyasu was another one of these self-made warrior types, kind of like Hideyoshi, who, surprisingly enough, though, had once been Hideyoshi's enemy. So it's time to get into his story because he's going to prove to be the, the main regent coming out of this mess. So just a little bit of
1: background on him. Tokugawa Ieyasu was born in 1543, really in the middle of all those civil wars that we mentioned. It showed, too, with his early upbringing. When he was two years old, his mother permanently separated from his father after shifting allegiances, changed feelings between their two families. And then when he was four, he was sent away as hostage to the Imagawa family. And on his way there, he was kidnapped by their rivals, the Oda family. He was kept for two years with the Oda family before being... Being released to the Imigawa, where he received military training and took up falconry.
0: So being released from your kidnapping family to, to your the hostage. hostage family. Exactly. But he did have a pretty important presence with his hostage family, at least, because by his late teens, he had become a military leader for the head of the family. But he hadn't completely forgotten his own people either, because in 1560, when the head of the Imagawa family was killed in battle, Ieyasu took the chance to leave them, get out of there, make sure his wife and his son could get out too, and return to his own castle and take up the duties as head of his clan, because by this point, That was his position. And he really worked with a lot of, um, he worked in a lot of ways to reestablish himself with his family. He not only fortified his own domains, you know, building up the armies, but he also reformed laws and tax codes and expanded his domains, too. So that by the early 1580s, he was one of the country's most important daimyo.
1: So it's probably not too surprising, then, that when Hideyoshi took up his old patron, Nobunaga's power, Ieyasu was kind of his main rival. The other most powerful guy in the land. Right. Finally, though, the two came to an agreement, Ieyasu's fealty in exchange for maintaining control of his own lands. Still, though, Ieyasu kept his distance from Hideyoshi. He shifted his base to the fishing village of Edo, which is now Tokyo, which, according to Encyclopedia Britannica, was a whole month's trip away from Hideyoshi's headquarters in Kyoto. So
0: he didn't want to be anywhere near Hideyoshi, but he also kept his nose out of all those Korean expeditions, staying pretty busy at home, so that when Hideyoshi died in 1598, Ieyasu was basically the most powerful guy in Japan with these huge armies and an excellent infrastructure and excellent organizational system, too, in his land. So he doesn't seem exactly like the type who would be cool just hanging out as a regent and um, not trying to get a little more power. So Ieyasu began pretty quickly doing things that didn't look that appropriate for a regent. He married off, like, his nine sons and daughters to all these other powerful lords in the land to create very strong alliances. But he met with a challenger, too. He wasn't the only the only person who had his his eye on getting some more power out of the situation. Exactly. And that person who challenged him was Lord Ishida Mitsunari. 20
1: years younger than Iyasu and more of an official than a warrior, Mitsunari had been Hideyoshi's inspector general. He was a stiff bureaucrat, good with numbers, but he hadn't made a great impression on quite a few daimyo. Though Mitsunari wasn't himself on the Regency Council, he quickly started stirring up trouble among the lords in an attempt to better his position. His interference angered some of Ieyasu's men, though, angered them enough, actually, that they wanted to have him executed, but Ieyasu spared him.
0: He did, but by the next year, Mitsunari was really kind of right back at it, and he had teamed up with one of the other regents, Usugi Kagekatsu. And of all of the alliances Mitsunari could have made, this was a really, really dangerous one for Ieyasu because his lands abutted those of Kagekatsu. And that meant that Edo, his home base where he put in uh, so much of his effort, was at serious risk. Ieyasu, though, of course, was not going to make this power grab without allies of his own. And he had a pretty good one on his side, Date Masumane, who was called the One-Eyed Dragon. He had lost an eye to smallpox as a child. And Masumane helped check Kagekatsu and seized his castle during this period when both of the armies were just picking off castles and fortresses in an attempt to try to control two main roads on Japan's main island. So one road that was in the east between Kyoto and Edo and the other in the west uh, that went through the mountains. I mean, it it is compared sometimes to a game of chess this period. And you can really get that sense, you know, picking off the castles in a game. Some of
1: these battles along the way were really big ones. Thousands were killed, for instance, in the August 1600 siege of Fushimi Castle, but that was really nothing compared to the main attraction, which was a final showdown between Ieyasu and Mitsunari at Sekigahara, a tiny but strategically located crossroads village. On October 7, 1600, Ieyasu left Edo with 30,000 men. By the 20th, his men had taken Ogaki Castle, but got word that Mitsunari, was moving towards Sekigahara, a narrow pass and an important crossroads. Then at 2 a.m., Ieyasu, now with 75,000 men, went out to meet Mitsunari who had combined who had a combined force, I should say, of about eighty thousand men.
0: So according to an article in the battle by John Murphy Jr. in military history, the two armies, Ieyasu's Eastern Army and Mitsunari's Western Army, met at about four A.M. And Mitsunari was ready to go then, ready for an all out night battle. But he had the idea vetoed by his strategist who thought that night battles were just for underdogs and you know Mitsunari did have more troops and the West army really was thought to have the advantage here. So instead, Mitsunari withdrew to a mountain outside the village, and Ieyasu set up camp on another mountain. But Ieyasu's position was really a lot better, because he could see the whole valley, and as his men started to come in, he bunched them really closely together. Uh, I thought it was interesting. Murphy described the formations as being, quote, much like a modern army, um, instead of being spread out across the whole valley, which is how Mitsunari's men were.
1: But Mitsunari also had some loyalty issues to be concerned with.
0: Pretty major one.
1: Yeah. I mean, remember how we said that he hadn't been popular with the Daimyo warriors back in his bureaucrat days? We mentioned that a little bit earlier. Of particular concern was Kobayakawa Hideaki, a powerful daimyo and Mitsunari's supposed ally. So Mitsunari had suspected that Hideaki might be up to no good. Back in the Korean Wars, Mitsunari had criticized Hideaki's leadership, and the result was a major drop in land revenues for Hideaki. He basically got a big pay cut He there. had a good reason to
0: have a grudge against Mitsunari, basically.
1: Right, but Mitsunari couldn't come out and accuse him of anything treacherous because Hideaki had 16000 men, one of the largest forces in the Western Army. His suspicions were on target, though. Mitsunari's suspicions were. Hideaki had secretly promised Ieyasu that he'd desert and change sides, something that was especially meaningful for Ieyasu, since Hideaki was the guardian of the boy that everybody was pretending to fight for in the first place. The one they were supposed to be regents for. Exactly. And his name would add legitimacy to Ieyasu's win. Also, another of Mitsunari's allies was planning on ditching him, and that was Kikawa Hiroie, and he was planning on leaving with his three thousand men. Something that Mitsunari never knew about or suspected. So in the he wasn't—he didn't
0: know to be worried about him. So. Right. Fighting started pretty early in the morning, you know, after they had delayed the night battle, but there was really heavy fog and it produced a tense atmosphere before battle actually began because both sides could hear each other getting ready, you know, drying out their clothes, getting their armor on, but they couldn't actually see them. Ieyasu's ally, Iey led the charge though with his red armored Red Devil cavalry. I mean, there were, you can look, pic- look up pictures of them and they're pretty scary, but they're sudden Charge was actually not cool with the guys on the same side, on the Eastern Army side, because leading the charge was considered a very honorable thing to do. So the other daimyo in the front just set off, too. They started charging. And soon enough, 20,000 men were rushing at the enemy, shouting, serve the nation for seven lives. And um, I guess to us, it sounds really chaotic, kind of like not following instructions, not being an orderly army. But according to Murphy, it was, quote, one of the last great cavalry charges in the age of the samurai. And it certainly had an effect. It certainly shook up the Western army. Yeah, one of the survivors of
1: the charge remembered, ally and foe pushed against each other. The musket fire and the shouts echoed from the heavens and shook the earth. The black smoke rose, making the day as night. But that dramatic charge, plus five cannons on Ieyasu's side, didn't actually determine the battle. Two hours later at 10 a.m.,
0: it was still anyone's guess as to who was going to win. Yeah, you'd think with Red Devils (laughs) the battle would end quickly, but it just seemed to be going on and on. And fighting carried on for another hour and a half after that and finally started to shift to the Western Army's favor. But the West really needed a strong final push in order to win, especially because certain Western leaders were not really obeying Mitsunari's orders and, and not in the way we're talking about with the Red Devils, like starting a charge, just flat out not going to fight at all. Uh, For instance, Hiroie, who had, of course, secretly switched sides, didn't give the signal he was supposed to, to call another clan into battle for the West. And when trying to mobilize the armies of some clans that really hadn't seen much action yet, Mitsunari got this response from one of his leaders, quote, in this battle, each clan must look to its own affairs and fight its own battles with all its might. There is no time to be concerned with the affairs of others in front, behind, or on either flank. That's not really something you want to hear from a guy who's supposed to be fighting for your cause. So
1: Mitsunari decided it was time to call his supposed ally, Hideyaki into battle, and so he lit a bonfire to send him the signal. But Hideyaki didn't budge. With his enormous army, he just sat on his mountaintop, not answering Mitsunari's command, but not changing sides either. Finally, Ieyasu, who was wondering if Hideaki had changed his mind about deserting, sent one of his guys to have it out with him. The chieftain messenger held a short sword to Hideaki's gut and told him, quote, "'The battle has already begun. Now is the time for either victory or defeat. There is some doubt about your intent to change sides. If you have lied, I'll run this through you right here.'" So
0: that makes, um, Ieyasu's intentions pretty clear, but that threat was made even clearer when Ieyasu ordered his troops to open fire on Hideaki. I mean, after all, if they weren't going to desert, they would just be considered enemies again. And knowing that this was really his last chance to keep his promise to Ieyasu, Hideaki finally, after 45 minutes of sitting on this mountain with pretty much everybody trying to see what he was going to do, waiting to see what he was going to do, rallied his men and cried, our target is Otani Yoshitsugu, who is one of the major commanders of the Western Army. And that target, though, Yoshitsugu was really sickly and almost blind. He was actually directing his troops from a leader during the battle. But he must have suspected that Hideaki was going to turn tail because half of his men were already facing toward their supposed ally, you know, waiting for him to come down that hill they fought off the charge as best as they could, but they were pretty tired. You know, they'd been fighting for hours by this point, and they were eventually enveloped by enemies. And when Yotsugu realized that he was done for, he ordered his aide to cut off his head and keep it out of Ieyasu's hands. He didn't want to be uh, a battle trophy, essentially. As news of Hideaki's treachery
1: spread through the Western Army, morale just kind of skydived. Guys started fighting just to Get out! And soon, Mitenari himself fled the field. The battle was over by 2 p.m. with Ieyasu victorious. He reviewed the heads that were taken in battle, and a party soon hunted down Mitenari, and he was executed along with several other commanders.
0: And Mitsunari really did prove to be Ieyasu's last major threat to power, because after the battle, Ieyasu banished or seized the lands of a lot of the other so-called rebellious daimyo and redistributed the land to people who he trusted more, you know, really trusted allies and adjusted the administration of his government, too. He would place his best, most trusted friends in central Japan, you know, so he felt particularly secure, and he'd create new regulations, too, to keep daimyo and no and clerics all in check. He
1: even pulled a Versailles and kind of had everyone pitch in on building and expanding the castle at Edo. Daimyo would live in the mansions that surrounded that. In 1603, the imperial court appointed him shogun, and after two years he retired, leaving his title to his son, Hidetada. Ieyasu had earned his power and demonstrated it decisively in battle, but if his son was going to continue in his position and establish a Tokugawa shogunate the family needed to be 100% free of rivals. And there was still one hanging around, wasn't there? Yes, there was. The so one who started this whole exactly, thing in the first place. The one
0: who all this fighting was about. So, by this point, Toyotomi Hideyoshi's son, Toyotomi Hideyori, was all grown up. And many of the old lords, even though they were outwardly loyal to Ieyasu and his kin, were still secretly loyal to the memory of Hideyoshi, and by extension, the memory and the future rule of his son. And as long as they lived, Ieyasu really played it pretty cool. He allowed Hideyori to stay in his defensive castle, to govern his own lands, you know, to have some measure of freedom and responsibility. Ieyasu even married his granddaughter off to Hideyori, hoping that that would smooth things over, you know, let everybody know that he was not going to mess with this kid. But when the last of Hideyoshi's loyal daimyo died in 1611, Ieyasu started to make plans Plans to eliminate his son. And in 1614, he finally made his move, claiming that Hideyori had tried to jinx him with this inscription on a bronze bell, you know, really just an excuse. He raised 90,000 ronin and attacked Osaka Castle to try to kill the 22 year old Hideori, just so his family would be 100% in the clear.
1: But Osaka Castle was super strong and it withheld the siege. Eventually, though, Ieyasu tricked Hideyori into a truce where he filled his outer moats and tore down the outer fortifications. Only months after this had been done, Ieyasu attacked him again. Hideyori ended up committing suicide, and his young son was killed in the battle. Ieyasu's own family continued to rule a unified Japan until 1868.
0: So he certainly succeeded in establishing his family line. And just kind of a fun fact before we leave this story, because I know, I mean, people love ninja, right? Ninjas were really important to warfare during this period. And I mean, you kind of think of them now as assassins clad in black. But according to an article in Military History by John Bertrand... Part of Ieyasu's success came from the fact that he controlled most of the ninja provinces. So he had a lot of potential spies on his hands. And I didn't even know that there were ninja provinces. I mean, there were special ninja villages that looked normal to the naked eye, but were really filled with these secret booby traps and things like rice paddies that could be flooded as moats and lots of young boys and men training to become ninjas. It
1: really doesn't surprise me that he went out now knowing that he had ninjas on his side.
0: (laughs) I know. So, yeah, I mean, he had all of this reconnaissance, and that really supposedly helped him a lot leading up to Sekigahara.
1: So now we know a little bit about Ieyasu's secret weapon and how he managed to win out. It was because he had some ninja spies on his side. Men in black. And we also had a little bit of secret Ninja like help with putting together <laughs> this podcast because of course as you've noticed we are not the best at Japanese <laughs> pronunciations so we got some help from our coworker fellow podcaster Tyler Klang and um he is also a Japanese speaker in addition to as many other myriad talents.
0: Yeah, well, and it's it's really great to have some pronunciation help so that we can cover really awesome Japanese history stories like
1: yeah. this. Yeah, and just to be clear, any mistakes we made are not a reflection <laughs> upon
0: him. We did our best. <laughs> so if you have any other Japanese history you want to suggest, anything you want to say about, um, I don't know, ninja strategy, it was interesting to learn that there are a lot of modern sort of spy reconnaissance techniques that are maybe partly inspired by ninja techniques. So if you have anything you want to say about that, feel free to email us at historypodcast at discovery.com. We're also on Twitter at Mistin History and we're on Facebook.
1: And if you want to learn a little bit more about some of the things that we discussed in this podcast, ninja in particular, we do have an article called How Ninjas Work. And you can look that up by visiting our homepage at www.howstuffworks.com.
0: Be sure to check out our new video podcast, Stuff from the Future. Join House of Works staff as we
1: explore the most promising and perplexing possibilities of tomorrow. The House of Works iPhone app has arrived. Download it today on iTunes.